All right, we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning, um, Acts chapter 9. And uh, the title of today's message is Alive, simply just Alive. Uh, last time we saw Saul, we saw him uh, on the way to persecute more Christians in Damascus. Uh, Jesus met him there. Uh, really, this is some sort of encounter. I don't know if you guys have ever been in the car and just, you know, you felt like, you maybe had worship on or there's a message on it. You felt like you needed to pray or God just overwhelmed you. But this was like, man, smack in the face. Paul got it. Uh, his, we saw his conversion, um, that he repented and he went the way that the Lord would have him go. And that uh, there was a calling on his life immediately. And I'd say that that's probably for you and me as well, that there is always a calling of God on each of our lives. God doesn't save us for no purpose. You know, he saves us one because he loves us and where he wants us to be his children, but he has a purpose and a plan for us. God is perfect, and uh, he doesn't do anything without thinking about it or having an amazing plan. Uh, but today we're going to look at uh, a little bit about persecution, and this persecution is coming back on Paul. Uh, peace in the church, a paralytic, a prayer, and someone being presented. But to tie in a little bit with uh, Saul here, we see that he did a complete 180. A complete 180. He was going one way, to do one thing, and we're going to see today that God turns them around and sends them back the way he went. But sometimes you and I have to make those 180s in life, whether it's on purpose or not. My wife could share with you a story about a few years ago. She was driving her mom's Jeep and getting off this um, entrance to the, getting on the highway, uh, and it was snowy out, and she spun completely around, and the semi went past her. And I don't remember if we were married at the time. I think we were engaged at the time because she was driving her mom's car. Um, but craziness i was glad she was okay she was too but she did 180 totally out of her control you know but you might say well turn turn the wheel into the into it um but really you know winter's coming sometimes you know we got to make sure our tires and stuff are good so we don't do that but sometimes you forget something and you turn around how many times you run out of the house and you go oh i forgot my cell phone or oh i forgot my wallet or i forgot my coffee <laughs> you know let me go around and turn around and get it and you get it halfway down the street and you have to turn around uh, i've done that a few times recently and that's kind of frustrating uh, but sometimes when the call of God is strong in your life, uh, you prepare to turn around and go back the way you came. Sometimes the call of God is so strong in your life, you've been going a direction, a certain direction, a certain way, and man, God keeps calling you, keeps getting your attention. Um, and you turn around and you go back the way you came, even though it seems like it might be backwards or other people might say that. But Father, we ask that today, that God, uh, the things you have for us, God, that you would feed us and uh, strengthen us and hold us close. But Lord, that we might know you better and know your word better and that God you would multiply us uh, not in number but in growth and that uh, your church as a whole would grow this morning in DC and New York and Indiana and all over in California and wherever our friends and family are and in the persecuted church God would you be with them today uh, as you always are but just remind them how much you love them in Jesus name amen and let's get started here verse 23 of chapter 9 in Acts uh, now after many days were passed the Jews plotted to kill him but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Uh, we see right away it says, now after many days were passed. You might be asking, how many days is many days? I don't know. <laughs> it was many days. But the word there is actually sufficient. Sufficient. The days were sufficient. 
Uh, so maybe it was a week, maybe it was a month, maybe it was three days. Uh, maybe there's some commentary somewhere to give us better insight on that. But I think the point is that the days were sufficient for the word to get out, for people to be reached in the area. But I think also the days were sufficient for, for Saul to, uh, to effectively upset the religious guys yet again. We see this tending to be a pattern uh, with the believers where they begin to go out and serve the Lord and love others and the religious people get upset. Um, you know, again, I uh, called to mind a friend uh, up in New York at a church and one of the first years they were up there, they did an outreach in the community. And a lot of the religious people in the area got mad. They said, you can't do this. I said, why not? <laughs> We're giving away stuff to people. You know, it happens all the time. But the fact that these guys get so mad so quickly, it was many days. It didn't say, it didn't say many years, so it couldn't have been too long a time. But they came up with murderous plots. This guy, Saul, who went up there to murder people, get saved, upset so, so many people in so many ways that they now want to kill him. It's like the tides have been turned on him. He was once the one to go out and want to murder people and arrest them. And now it's turning around on him. And also it has this context of that time was up, that the time was up, that when it's time, you know, it's just time to go. It's time to go. Uh, you know, I was talking with a friend earlier. He was talking to me about someone left uh, his job. I told, you know, I shared that my boss left the job recently, that, you know, his time was up. It was time to go. The, the two-week notice was given. But 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7 says, For I am already being poured out, as a drink offering. This is Saul as his new name, Paul, writing later on at the end of his life. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know that this, uh, as we'll see, isn't quite yet time for Saul to be killed. But at some point, Saul comes to a point in his life and he realizes, it's, it's my time to go now. It's my time to go now. I've, I've kept the faith, he says. But there's a time for each of us. You know, if you read Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time to die, a time to laugh. Um, maybe it's that old bird song, too, that they ripped it off, I think. But that there's a time for everything. You know, there's seasons in life. You know, this is a season that we're meeting here right now. Maybe there will be a different season soon. Maybe not. Um, there's a season in life when you're engaged or single or married or old or young. There's all these seasons that come and go. But there's going to come a point in time in each of our lives when things have to end. Um, and the Bible even says that, um, you know, why do you look back at uh, the older things and think that they were better than now? It's foolish. Um, and that's that sometimes that the, the end of a thing is better than the beginning thereof. Um, and that's the case here, that it was time. Saul's time in Damascus, um, I believe, was coming to an end. I think everything could have been done uh, that was done there. Um, and these doors uh, began to close uh, for Saul. But the plot became known to Saul. You know, and I think a murderous plot doesn't just get out. You know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, it's a conspiracy because if it's true, the, the conspiracy that the people is about, they don't want it to get out. You know, if you're involved in a crime, you know, you're probably not going to post it on Facebook. Some people do these days and they get picked up right away. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but really, if, you, if you're intent about killing someone, I, I don't think you're going to let people know that uh, who, um, who aren't in on it with you. That would be kind of foolish. So if this plot got out, it was leaked. Um, it was overheard, you know, I don't think it was WikiLeaks back in the day. I think if we remember who Saul was, he was a Pharisee, he was a religious guy and who wanted to kill him, religious guy. So I think perhaps, um, there was someone in the religious circles who found out and, and told the apostles or told Paul, this person maybe at least sympathized with Saul, um, knew what was going on and got a message to him. Maybe someone overheard somewhere. I don't know. It doesn't say, but if we think about it as a context, that's pretty, pretty big deal. You know, you're out sharing the gospel and all of a sudden there's a plot to kill you a plot to kill you. It says, 
that they watched at the gates day and night to kill him. Um, they watched day and night. You know, they were waiting in ambush for him. You know, there's one way in and out of the city um, or several ways in and out of the city. And so they're waiting there. You know, they're waiting by the highway on your commute to work. They're at that exit. They're at that uh, street corner. They're waiting for you to show up. You know, you live in a gated community. They're waiting right outside um, to get him, to ambush him. And that meant Saul couldn't leave the city. If he didn't want to face an ambush and be killed, he couldn't leave the city. Um, you think of checkpoints or guards or death threats. You know, this is very much like a suspenseful movie. All these things going on. Um, you know, can you picture this? Um, you know, it's very wor- it's worse than that. It's worse than that. I, can, I can't imagine wanting to go out there and having someone waiting to kill us or having someone waiting to hurt us because we went to church today or because we're a believer. I can't imagine that. And I know that this is a reality for many people these days. Um, you know, but the question might come up, well, what about trusting God? What about trusting God? Well, you trust God, don't you? Why don't you just walk down through the city gates and God will protect you? Um, you know, because the disciples snuck him out by night. They let him out. You know, again, can you picture this? They stuffed Paul in a big basket and let him out over the city walls. You know, can you imagine your friends letting you down over an overpass and, you know, into a, a waiting truck or something? I don't know. You think of North Korea. These people have to escape, um, you know, at night at the threat of death and sometimes leave their families behind. Um, or in World War II with the Jews fleeing and uh, people like uh, Cory Ten Boom and others who would hide them uh, in their homes and try and get them out to safety. Or uh, with the Civil War and the Underground Railroad where slaves were hidden in people's homes and underground all the way up to the north to freedom. Or persecuted areas today, a lot of in Muslim and communist areas where people are persecuted and they have to be snuck around. You know, can you picture this? Can you picture this? Can you picture that going on? You know, maybe you might say, um, you know, that Saul should have trusted God and just walked out of the city gates, like I said. But really, you know, if God's his protection, why is he going to do that? You know, why are we going to test God like that? Luke 4, 9 through 12 says, Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So when Jesus is being tempted by the enemy and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And also in Matthew ten sixteen, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I think there might be a little bit of an angle here that we can look at and say that we don't have to tempt God to be foolish or impractical when it comes to things of life, especially dangerous situations and ultimately the reality that we're living in and going on. You know, I think of uh, when I first got saved, we did this local missions uh, outreach to a rough uh, city in our, in our area. And um, we went in there as a bunch of people and uh, did like, there was like this rap troop that came up from the city and did outreaches on every corner and gave the gospel. And we went out and evangelized and talked to people in the area night and day. And I look back and I go, I don't know if I'd be as uh, easily walking into those situations now that I know um, a little more. Um, but I remember at one point walking down this one street and I ended up, didn't realize how I got there. You know, I could hear the music in the distance. It was dark. There were some people hanging out outside. Um, and I realized that I was alone, but I wasn't scared. And I ended up talking to someone and they were, I don't know if they were possessed or high or something, but they were really out there. Um, but God protected me, you know, now would I recommend next time you do an outreach in a rough neighborhood to go walking off by yourself in the middle of the night? No, but you know what? I ended up in that situation and God protected me. Um, And not to say that maybe 
God wouldn't call you to go do that. I'm not saying he's not, but I think, again, we don't need to be Christian daredevils and go out there if God's not specifically saying we have to. There's, you know, there's a wisdom and a practicality to being uh, wise and safe. Um, but again, when it's your time, it's your time. You know, you could go out and do that, and God's like, it's not time yet. Or you could go to the supermarket, and uh, a cantaloupe could fall and hit you on the head. I don't know. Um, but God will protect you where he calls you. Uh, and you don't need to be impractical or unwise about real dangers. Um, I'm sure many of us have heard plenty of stories about God protecting people or maybe even been in those things. But uh, Luke 22, 33 to 38 says, But Jesus said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. Uh, but he said to Jesus, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and death. Uh, and this is Peter in the garden before Jesus is arrested. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you'll deny me three times that you know me. And he said to him, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this, uh, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for one thing concerning me have an end. For the things concerning me have an end, excuse me. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. You know, here we see that Jesus says, at one point, I sent you out with anything. You guys basically went with the, the clothes on your back and people provided for you and you went and shared the gospel. But now things, that sort of time has come to an end. Now I'm telling you to take a money bag. I'm telling you to take your wallet. I'm telling you, you to take your camping bag with your sleeping bag and your clothes in it and a tent. And I've also said that, hey, if you've got a sword, keep it. And if you don't have a sword, sell your winter coat and get it. You know, he doesn't tell them to get rid of their swords like a lot of us think. Oh, Christians shouldn't be able to defend themselves or protect themselves or others. He tells them to buy them, but he also doesn't tell them to go nuts. He tells them to be reasonable, but practical, I believe. And I'm not telling you what to do here. I'm not saying you need to go out and do anything that, that you don't feel led to do. But there are real dangers out there. And I find that many people are very naive to the real dangers in society. And I'm talking just practically about safety, about going out and hanging out in certain areas and doing certain things. Um, you know, my wife and I were talking the other night. It's like, you know, we're safe. I'm not going out and hanging out somewhere I shouldn't be hanging out at 10 o'clock at night. So I don't have the same danger in my life that someone else might have. But things are going to get worse. And things are steadily getting worse whether you're a Christian or not. You look around in the world. And we shouldn't be naive to these things and go around with our head in the, head in the clouds and think that, all the things are okay, and, and I don't need to be aware of what the world is going on. Um, again, you know, I don't want to get too deep deep into it, but there's this whole idea of mindset in Christianity about pacifism. And I get the idea of, okay, maybe you don't want to be a war hawk and go out and invade a million territories and claim this land for Spain, so to speak. But on the other hand, you know, I've heard people say that, uh, you know, I'm not going to fight someone. I'm not going to step up and do something against them. And I'm like, well, if someone comes in your house at night, and they begin attacking your family, are you just going to sit there and pray, Lord, please stop this attack while they hurt your family? Well, I, I hope that's not all you do. I know that's one thing, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to pray, the next thing, I'm going to put myself in front of that person. I'm going to protect my family. Now, you can get on the whole idea of self-defense, you know, turn the other cheek. Well, if I'm protecting my family, I'm laying my life down for someone. Like Jesus said, no one has greater love than this than to lay your life down for someone else. I think that if we're to love our neighbor, you know, how far do you extrapolate this? If someone's hurting your neighbor, do you just sit there and pray for them? Or do you love your neighbor and go help them out if they're being hurt? You know, you, we could make this into a, a whole topic. But really, I think that 
what what the point is is that it's a dangerous time and there are things that are going to hurt us there are things that are going to come after us and we need to be very wise in this day and age um, not only as christians but um, uh, just as people who live in this society but even with all that said even with all these topics that we barely touched on and could be very full of debate the point is that we we shouldn't lose sight of the gospel that our primary directive is not to go out and start an army our primary directive is not to go and build up a thousand walls around our house so that no one can ever get in. Not that I wouldn't necessarily encourage you not to do that, but our primary goal is the gospel. That's our core directive, that whether we go into a safe place or a dangerous place, whether we uh, have our lives at risk or not, it's for the gospel. It's for the gospel. Uh, you know, um, my mom would say to me, I'm so glad you're going to Maryland and not going to some dangerous part of the world. <laughs> And I say, well, I don't know. It's probably easier, in a sense, to go to some dangerous part of the world. And, you know, if God calls us to go there, to go there. You know, that's my concern with my family is that I want to be where the Lord has us because I know that whatever dangers we face, I know that the Lord has prepared them for us. But I know that if I say, well, I don't want to go there. I'd rather go somewhere else. Then I've kind of exposed them to dangers that, um, that maybe they wouldn't have to face otherwise. You know, whether it's physical danger, emotional, spiritual, whatever. But here we see that Saul is let down in the basket. Man, that reminds me of Moses. Moses was let down in a basket, right? Moses' mom disobeyed the Pharaoh's command to protect her son. Moses' mom did something illegal to protect her baby boy. And what did God do? That was a God-ordained thing. That Moses might be raised in Pharaoh's household and one day lead the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, wicked kings do wicked things to protect their kingdoms. They did that. They do that. And I think that that's why these guys are trying to attack Saul. That's why they try to attack Moses. That's why they try to kill Jesus as a little um, as a little boy. But you know what? I think also, as we'll see here and a little bit later, as we get ready to move on, that the disciples did it. The disciples are the one who kind of took Saul and lowered him down. It doesn't necessarily say that Saul was like, hey, guys, lower me down. It just says that the disciples did it. So could Saul have been willing to die for the Lord already? Maybe. Let's go on to verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. I don't know about you, but have you ever gone somewhere and expected a warm welcome? Maybe it's a high school reunion, a family party, <laughs> you know, a new job. Uh, when I came to my new job, I found out they had a nickname for me already from this movie. And it's funny. It's, it's all in jest and it's good. But uh, uh, that was sort of the thing. You know, that wasn't the warm welcome I was expecting. But, you know, uh, these people are great and they're actually making some good friends there now. But I wonder what Saul was thinking on the trip back to Jerusalem. You know, I can't wait to meet the believers there. I'm going to apologize to them for being so crazy and wanting to kill them and arrest them. Sorry. Uh, he wanted to fellowship with them. Uh, he wanted to be with them and spread the gospel and be a part of what God was doing there. But man, they weren't so welcoming, were they? They're like, well, we don't know about you, Saul. We know what you were. Wasn't that just three weeks ago that you were out here trying to arrest me? <laughs> you know, weren't you just uh, had your little police light on your donkey and were chasing me down? I don't know. But man, sometimes even believers aren't warm and welcoming. Sometimes even believers, if you have a reputation, you'll get a little bit of a cold shoulder. 
Um, I think of uh, the church that I grew up in in, in New York. I uh, grew up spiritually, that is to say. Um, there was always compliments there. It was a very warm and welcoming church, and not to the sense where, you know, if you get off a topic with that, but um, uh, really where if you came in, you were greeted. You were told to be hello. Even those who weren't official greeters, you were just greeted, said hello. There was a time before the message when everyone uh, turned and said hello. Um, and the pastors uh, there would always get emails and, and uh, letters and things like that. Oh, this is our first time there. We felt so welcome. We felt so loved and uh, people greeted us. And only once or twice did we ever hear um, otherwise uh, that, man, they visited and they weren't. And you know what? When that happened, the pastor would share this. Hey, I got a letter. You know, make sure you greet somebody. You don't, you know, make sure you say hello. Um, uh, you know, the, the joke was that they were fellowship junkies. We would just hang out. <laughs> All the time, you know, we're trying to lock up and kicking people out the door, you know. <laughs> Diners open, but we're not, you know. <laughs> but really, um, you know, that's a good thing. And we need to be that way as believers. But again, with this practical side, you kind of have to keep things in balance, you know, especially if you have little ones or a family um, or if you're uh, at a church and, you know, you just it's open to the public to come in. Uh, you know, I'll be warm and wel- welcoming, but I'm going to keep my eye on you. Not any of you guys, but... Really, you know, if we were in a bigger place one day, I'll be warm and welcoming, but I'm making sure that things are okay. You know, we had a security team in New York. We had guys with walkie-talkies who walk around. A lot of them were cops in New York City, and they walk around. They had a lot of the most friendly guys ever. There's one guy I think of was like the funniest, friendliest guy I've ever met. But really, if you were up to no good, there was going to be trouble in your neighborhood. <laughs> and I think that that's not really what the church is doing here. They, they saw Saul. They were concerned. Uh, but they weren't very welcoming at all. You know, it was scattering the church, you know, even with his bad reputation. He came back in town and the church kind of said, no, we don't want to be where Saul is. Um, and I think that in a sense that's called for here. You know, you think of stories of underground churches being infiltrated by spies from the Communist Party or other, otherwise coming in. You know, you don't know who the people are that are around you. And if this guy was just killing the church a few weeks ago, I'd be a little nervous letting him in my house too later. i say, I'll meet you for coffee next week. <laughs> but man, this guy Barnabas, the, uh, the disciple and apostle Barnabas, his name means son of rest, and he was a real encourager. We'll see that uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, but have you ever known someone like that, who's someone who's really encouraging, and someone you just hang out with, and man, like, you know, they leave, and you're not like, ah, oh, they left. You're like, oh man, that was good. I feel so rested and so blessed by them. I know a few people like that in my life. Um, but what a blessing to be around and what a blessing to have someone like Barnabas on your side, um, where he comes in and he brings uh, Saul to the apostles. And he's like, look, this is what he did. His life is different. He's out there preaching the gospel. He's not the same guy he was, um, many days ago. Um, and you know, the evidence of that, the evidence of that was not just that Saul said it was that his life had a total 180 was that his life was once going out to murder Christians. And now the very people that he was with now want to murder him. And I don't know about you or I, but when he got saved, if the people in your life, maybe they didn't want to murder you, but maybe they didn't want to be friends with you anymore, or uh, maybe you didn't get the promotion or the job that you wanted because you now were a believer. But the proof of his apostleship we see here that was that he saw Jesus on the road. Saul was going away to kill the church. Jesus shows up and he says he saw him on the road. But wasn't that how Jesus called all of his disciples? whether it was the fishermen, tax collectors, or religious guys, hey, come follow me. In a sense, that's the same message that Jesus gave to Saul, except we sometimes put Saul in a different category because we're like, oh, he was a murderer. He wasn't a tax collector. 
you know, but Jesus, not to Jesus, not to Jesus. You know, I think of prison ministry, you know, a lot of people, um, it's prison ministry is hard. I, I was involved in some, uh, juvenile hall style ministries many years ago. Um, but man, you know, some kids are in there or just in there and in there and other kids are in there and you see, man, there's a, there's a change in this young man's life and you pray that, uh, it sticks. But they would say all the time, man, when I go home, I got to deal with all these people and they think I'm the same old person and there's all these temptations and these other things. And, um, you know, as believers, if we, if we meet someone who's been saved, we need to give them the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, keep an eye on the silverware, but really that we, um, we really are welcoming the people. Um, because, man, if, how hard would that be? You come out of a rough life, a different life, you get saved and then you go to the church expecting to be warmed and welcomed by other believers, and then the church kind of denies you and pushes you away. Um, man, let that, let that not be us. But it says here in verse 28 that he was coming in and going out. And this is exactly what Saul could not do in Damascus, but he could do here. You know, if you wanted to try and come in and go out of Damascus, they would have killed him. But here he has freedom and he has an open door for ministry and fellowship. And, you know, I... I think that this tying in with the other area might say to us that sometimes where God has you is not where he wants you. Maybe you're in a Damascus right now and you feel like you can't go out or you can't come in. Maybe God has a reason for that, like we talked about a few weeks ago, to get your attention. Uh, but sometimes he uses these things to direct us and to, to guide us um, um, in our lives. And that really requires prayer for discernment about why you're in a certain circumstance. Um, you know, not just to take every bad circumstance as a sign to move, uh, but really, why does he have you there? And I think that sometimes it's through the radical practical that God brings you where he wants you. God will use radical practical situations to get you where he wants you to go sometimes. Sometimes like unemployment. Sometimes you lose your job and you have to move somewhere. You have to go somewhere. And God uses that. Maybe, you know, a job change. Sometimes it's traffic. Sometimes there's a big traffic jam and you're late for something and God sets something up for you. Sometimes maybe you have a flat tire or you oversleep and there was an accident on the highway and who knows, maybe that could have been you if you didn't oversleep that morning. Not that it's, you know, well, I'm going to oversleep every morning then. Um, or maybe it's you get woken up early or maybe it's an unexpected life event like someone died or something happened, someone leaves. Or maybe it's death threats. Maybe it's death threats. These death threats against Saul where I got him to come down and meet the apostles. You know, maybe he wouldn't have gone there the other way. I think of, um, I grew up in North Jersey and then I went to college and I dropped out of college and I was living with my mom and she moved up to New York because um, it was cheaper up there and she needed to move up there and it was just uh, better for her. Um, but I went with her. I didn't have a choice. I didn't know the Lord yet, but I went up there and I hated it. It took me out of my friends. It took me far away from the places where I partied and went. But you know what? God used that. That's what God needed to do in my life to get my attention and get me to come to him and uh, receive salvation. You know, I don't know. I'm sure God could have done it any way he wanted to, but I think that this is what he had to do in my life to take me out uh, through this radical, practical situation that I wanted nothing to do with. Um, but we see here that, that uh, Saul met with the Hellenists, that he disputed with them. And these Hellenists, they're really, uh, the word is kind of a Grecian. Uh, they were ethnic Jews in, Greece, in Greek culture, born in foreign lands. So think of yourself, um, uh, I don't know, my heritage is kind of a European mutt, but mostly Irish. Think of myself as being Irish, but living in America. Um, you know, it's a little more distinct for the Jews because the religion and everything is tied in with their ethnicity as well. Um, but really, he's 
disputing with them. Saul's not mincing words. Saul doesn't, uh, again, uh, take things easy or lightly or, or beat around the bush. He gets right into it. And I think in a sense that he disputed with them, because if you think of Greek culture, Greek culture was a very philosophical culture, as we'll see later about Mars Hill, where uh, Paul goes out and ministers to the people there. But they like to talk. They like to think. They like to work and reason things out. So if you think of a Jewish person, Growing up in a foreign land and a Greek culture, they probably have a different mindset than the people living in Jerusalem. Just as if you go to California, they might have a different mindset, as we call it here, the, the left coast. Or uh, There's some jokes about all the nuts falling over there. I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, you could probably have the same thing about the east coast or the north and the south, the midwest, that there's these different cultures and the same thing um, went on down there. Uh, but this word is to seek or examine together, discuss or dispute or to question that they were, he really got in it with these Hellenists, with these Jewish people who are Greek. And we see that God begins to plant these seeds in Saul's life of ministering to a more of a Greek culture instead of the Jewish culture. But this brings up the idea of apologetics, apologetics. And that's not really apologizing. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm a believer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't believe this. I'm sorry. 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 It's really arguing in a, in a, um, in a debate sense, not in a rage sense. Uh, you guys like Ravi Zacharias or Ken Ham, check them out. You know, those guys are amazing where they, the things that they argue, the reasons and the intellectual arguments that they bring up are so scriptural and so spiritual that, um, not necessarily that a good argument is what you need to bring someone to salvation. The Holy Spirit's going to do it through simple words or complex words. But it's so good to see that, hey, you know, a lot of people think Christianity is dumb. And to think that you see these guys who are so smart and so well-spoken and have so many good arguments uh, for it. You just, you just can't refute it. You just can't refute it. And I think that that's why they attempted to kill Saul as well. They couldn't refute it. They couldn't refute it. They were Jewish and they were Greek and their heritage and their culture. And neither of them had a good defense against what Saul did. And they tried to kill him. And man, that discussion didn't really go too well, did it? Saul walks away and the Hellenists don't get saved. They want to kill him. And have you ever felt like that? You get in a conversation, maybe it's a family member around the holidays coming up or a coworker or a friend. And you go, man, they didn't get saved. They hate me now. Or man, that, that conversation didn't go the way I thought, you know, just because the, the ending didn't come out the way you expected doesn't mean that God uh, doesn't have a use for it or didn't use it. You know, do you think that Saul questioned his commitment to the Lord at this point? People were trying to kill him everywhere he went. Um, you know, he used to be on the giving end of the sword, but now he's on the receiving end of the sword. I, don't, I really don't think Saul questioned his commitment to the Lord. I think these things only made his resolve stronger, uh, seeing what kind of man Saul was and the things he writes in the scriptures. But also because, again, when the brethren found out, it was when the brethren found out, it was when the, the believers found out that they tried to kill Saul, or that they're trying to kill Saul again, they brought him down to Caesarea, this port city. And again, I think maybe Saul was already willing to die for the Lord. He's out there sharing and sharing so boldly that people want to kill him. I think he's ready to die for the Lord. I think he realized so 180 again, man, I used to kill people for this, but I got to be live all out for the Lord. And the disciples, again, they whisk him away to Caesarea. I was looking it up online. Apparently there's a golf club there now, <laughs> but it's an ocean city, a port city. Um, and they put him on a boat back up to where to Tarsus where Saul grew up um, and we're not going to hear from Saul again until chapter 11 but again we think of man this guy was so sold out for the Lord God keeps using these situations and other people in his life to get Saul to go where Saul needs to go at this stage in his life 
and acts again, praxeus, is these great works of men. And uh, like a good action-packed, suspenseful, dramatic movie, we begin shifting characters and shifting scenes. We get a little bit of a scene over here, we get a little bit of a scene over here, and now we come back to some characters we saw before. And we're going to look back at the churches now, and then the Apostle Peter. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Then all the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. It's interesting that it says, then all the churches had peace. Had peace excuse me. Not that Saul wasn't a good influence per se. We see this example. But I think the region really needed time to heal from what had happened and what had gone on with the persecution and with this guy Saul murdering people. And I think that even though they, uh, he was vetted to the apostles and even though that the, the believers trusted and believed in him, I think that all the turmoil that he was causing and his presence and the fear and the, the murderous plots, I think, um, you know, it was good for a season, but God decided to end it to bring peace to the region. Um, you know, peace and edification. We see this tying there that they needed peace for them to be edified. If you're always worried about what's going on outside, you're probably not going to have much peace in your life and you're not going to be built up very much. You're going to become weak. Um, but we see that they get built up and grown up in the scriptures now that they're not worried about someone coming in and arresting them every day. And I think, man, how would our Sundays be like? How would our Bible studies, how would our home studies, how would our time be like if we were always worried that Man, we got to shut the windows, we got to lock the door, we got to be a little quiet because we're afraid that um, we're going to get arrested or worse. But it says that they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's awesome that they walked with God and the comfort He gives. But we see that this leads to what? To growth, to multiplication. And um, it's good spiritual growth. Again, this isn't about numbers, this is about them. Hey, we're walking with the Lord, we're trusting with God, we're getting built up, and people are coming to know Him because of that. You know, two times two times two is eight, right? So two friends, two friends, two friends. You think it's only eight people, but really multiplication is exponential. You know, one person tells two friends, and that's three, and then they tell two friends, and that's seven people, and they tell two friends, and 31 and 66, assuming just the new friends tell new people. And that's the same thing here, that, you know, they're not seeking to fill seats, um, but they're multiplying disciples, this idea of discipleship, that, hey, we're being built up, we're growing up, we're walking our lives out in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and we're encountering other people in our lives, and we're by example and by discipleship showing them how to live their lives and walk their lives in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that just catches on, and these people begin um, to follow and go on. And I think that uh, that's very important for us in this day and age to not be concerned about physical numbers, but be concerned about really making disciples. I mean, Jesus, he had 12 close disciples and only three real guys who were really close to him and everyone else kind of followed at a distance. Let's go on. Um, verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. We see we're coming back to Peter again. Lydda was nine miles inland from the coastal city of Joppa on the way to and from Jerusalem. So you have uh, Joppa on the west, on the east side of the Mediterranean, um, uh, Lydda, and then Jerusalem. And it says that this word found, he found this man. It could mean either by chance or on purpose. 
You know, maybe he was like the paralytic at the gate uh, that we saw earlier in Acts, or maybe Peter had heard about this man from other believers. I'm sure the word got out that Peter had healed the paralytic man uh, by the power of God. So maybe his friends, maybe they're trying to bring him there. Um, you know, it says that this guy was paralyzed for eight years. Maybe it was disease. You know, the older translation says sick of the palsy. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe he couldn't afford his health care, or maybe the health care couldn't do anything for him. Um, but we see that when Peter comes to this man, uh, it's a simple statement. We don't see Peter praying here. Uh, you know, maybe he did uh, internally. Maybe, it, you know, it just wasn't recorded. But we just see him say something to this man. He says, arise and make your bed for Jesus the Christ heals you. It wasn't Peter saying, I healed you. It says, Jesus heals you, you know. And if Jesus did it, Peter did it. We look at Mark 2, 4, when the friends of that paralytic man lowered him through the roof to Jesus and Jesus simply said to him, hey, your sins are forgiven you. And then there's sort of a ruckus. And he says, well, what's easier, sins forgiven or that you walk again? And he tells the man to what? To rise, take up his mat and walk. Or in John 5, 8, with the paralytic at the pool of Bethsaida, where Jesus tells this man, arise, take up your mat and walk. Um, and again, this I think this ties in with being a disciple. This isn't Peter copying what Jesus did just for copying sake, arise and walk. But really, uh, learning to live like they do in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort and the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he's walking as Jesus walked. When he's going somewhere, he's healing someone. When he's going somewhere, um, he's taking care of the needs in the area, the people that he encounters and that he finds along the way. And that was really the way the Lord was. You know, it didn't have to be this big plan. It was just, I'm going, I feel led to go this direction for the Lord. And these are the people I encounter and I minister to. But again, what's the fruit of all this? Uh, it wasn't a healing ministry toward a 1995 book sale. It was that the people who dwelt there in actually two cities in Lydda and Sharon see this, see this man who's now healed. And what happens? They get saved. The word all is all individually and collectively. There was a re- it wasn't a revival. It was a revival because it hadn't happened in this town before. But really, this whole, this whole region began to get saved. And maybe there weren't a lot of people there. Maybe there were only a couple thousand people. Maybe there's only a couple hundred. I don't know. Um, but really, how long will it take for revival to happen here? How long is that going to take? And, and I don't know the answer to that. But maybe, sharply, to you and to me, I might say, maybe as long as it takes for you and me to become a disciple, to become truly a disciple. You know, it takes just one guy meeting one need through God's miraculous power for two whole towns to get saved. That's crazy. That's crazy. I've never seen that happen. I've never been a part of something like that. But I hope that we, as we follow the Lord together, would um, in some way impact the area that we're in. But let's go on here as uh, our time is running short. Verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Uh, This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that when she became sick and that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two, uh, two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose uh, and went with him, and we'll stop there. Uh, but this lady named Tabitha or Dorcas, depending on uh, what language you're in, I don't know which name you would go by, but I don't want to go by the name Dorcas. <laughs> you know, I'll go by Tabitha. Uh, and I won't even go by Tabitha because that's a girl's name, but it just means gazelle. But this lady was full of good works and charitable deeds. She was a very godly woman. And what happened to her? She died. She got sick and died. Um, but really, as a godly woman, First Timothy 5, 3 through 6 says, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. 
Now she was really a widow and left alone like this lady, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers every night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead where she lives. That this woman was godly and truly lived a life while she was alive, you know, and she had died while doing what again? While serving God. You know, and sickness and death are part of life. You know, just because we're serving God, we're not immune to death threats. We're not immune to getting sick. Um, uh, you know, sometimes we might be murdered. Sometimes we might die. Um, but really, if we're serving the Lord, that's the way you want to go out. You know, I joked before about dying, you know, going out by way of uh, my wife's scones. That would be a way to go out. Man, what better way to go out than dying uh, for the Lord and not for something uh, foolish? But she was dead. This lady was Flat out dead. It was before the funeral, before they, you know, buried her. They put her in the upper room. They had her all wrapped up. And they said, hey, Peter's close. Let's hurry up. Get here. Don't waste your time. You know, we don't have much time here. Um, but, man, these guys had faith. These guys had faith, you know. Someone in my family dies. I don't know that I'm going to call for a pastor friend of mine to come and pray for him. I don't know that I have that kind of faith. Um, but we think of Jesus with a little girl who dies. That little girl, raise up. Or Lazarus. Or dead people arose of the resurrection, that man, this power was real. This power is real. Let's go on, verse uh, 39. Then Peter uh, arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when she had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was uh, that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. And it says in 39 that all the widows, all the widows, she was ministering to those people in need. Uh, but they were grateful in mourning. You know, there's this custom today when someone died, there would be wailings and people would get together. We saw that with Jesus. Um, but I think that these ladies, these widows who are mourning, weren't just mourning in the customary way. I think they were mourning more so um, because of uh, how sweet this lady was and how she met the needs of them. You know, they had their tunics and the garments that this lady Tabitha had made for them and cared for them with. And we think back to uh, when Stephen and the other, um, uh, excuse me, deacons were appointed. And what was the ministry for? It was caring for the widows. It was caring uh, for the Hellenists. But man, I, you know, would we be missed like that? Would we, you or I be missed like that? If we died today, would we be missed like that? Um, I don't know if I'd be missed like that. I mean, yeah, sure, we maybe have some friends and family, but are there people that we minister to that would really be upset over that? I'm sure any, if any of us passed in this room, we'd be upset. But I don't know that, you know, that our, my life at least has been that, uh, that impactful in other people's lives. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some people, but man, um, I don't know. And I think that this, that's not really a pity request. I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you do, oh, no. But really, I think it's one of those times, like we talked about last week, that when we encounter scriptures like this and we encounter um, what it said and what's happening and we have to consider how do we fit in, it needs to be one of those times when we fall on the Lord and let ourselves be broken on the Lord and say, man, ooh, this is what we walk away with, not just a pat on the back and feeling good after service, but, oh, okay, is my life the life that the Lord would have me live? In? Is my heart in the right condition? Um, before the Lord. But it says that Peter put them out and prayed. And we saw that Jesus had done that. Um, and again, I think this wasn't a time to comfort them with prayer. You know, someone goes through a loss and you say, I'm praying for you, or you take them aside and you pray for them. There's a time and a place for that. But Peter wasn't about to mess around right now. 
He wasn't there to seek glory and, hey, watch me pray. And this woman comes back to life. No, get out of here. I need to pray and, and see what the Lord might do here. Um, you know, it was a serious situation. Uh, but it was simple. You know, Peter prayed that God would work. And then what did he do? He simply spoke to her. He said, Tabitha, arise, get up, wake up, wake up again like Jesus. And he did what? He presented her alive. And what a gift. What a gift that is. You know, someone just passed away in the other room. Peter comes in, prays for her, and we're all here for a funeral, and she comes out alive. I mean, it sounds crazy. It sounds amazing. We all kind of, you know, I know, struggle with believing that, but this is what, what the truth is. And again, her time wasn't yet, but God used this faithful woman's death and resurrection to bring glory to his name and people to his faith. Again, what was the result of this woman coming back to life? Not that Peter got this fantastic ministry, but that people get saved. Um, it wasn't everybody in Joppa, it says. It says many people were saved. Uh, maybe it was a bigger town now. But everyone found out that it happened. Everyone was given an opportunity to come to faith uh, through this. Through this. Um, and we think about this woman being presented alive as we close here. That, that she was living a life of faith and she died. And yet she was brought back to life to bring glory to God. And we see uh, this man, um, Saul who was going around killing people and his life gets turned around to where now he is so alive and so willing to live for the Lord that people are ready to kill him. And we see that we started with the words many days and we end with the word many days that Peter now tarried here. He remained here in this area and he settled in for a time, you know, in this area, it was nice. It's by the beach. Hey, yeah. You call me by the beach Lord. All right. You call me in Hawaii. Great. (laughs) I don't think it was necessarily just that. I think that, again, that Peter saw an opportunity to minister here. God had him here through this practical situation. This woman, Peter was somewhere else. This woman dies and gets sick. He comes there and prays for them, and now he stays for a reason. And again, he stays with a tanner. This place is very smelly, very stinky. It's, you know, animal hides and stuff that's kind of looked down on in the Jewish religious culture. Uh, But again, he didn't settle in for a glamorous life here. He knew that God had him there and had him there for a purpose. And that's life. That's being alive is knowing that, hey, I'm going to go where God has me to go. It doesn't have to look the way I think it has to look. It doesn't have to be the way I think it has to be, but I'm just going to be alive and serve him. Amen. Uh, Father, I thank you for your love and God, the call that you place in each of us, that Lord, we're to be alive in you and new creations and that God, you could take us from being so far off and so gone and you can change us and make us new and head us in a different direction. And Lord, if if there's anything in our lives this morning that we need to put down, God, help us to do that. And Lord, if you've got us in a tough situation and it's to grow us, thank you for it. But Lord, if if these hard situations, these radical situations are in our lives to get our attention and point us in another way, would you do that and bring us to where we need to be as, uh, as individually, uh, but also collectively as a body. We love you and we thank you. And we pray you bless your people again this morning. Those in our family and friends who are sick, would you heal them? I think of uh, Ashley's uncle. God, would you heal him? God, we pray and be with their family. Uh, but God, we ask for your grace and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.